and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast, where each week we explain and debate the most important news issues right now in NHS policy and leadership. I'm Annabelle Collins, and this week I'm joined by a team of expert journalists. We've got senior correspondents Sharon Brennan, Nick Carding and Rebecca Thomas. And so this week was um, another big week for news in the world of NHS policy. Um, uh, the day in the calendar, the day in the calendar, definitely marked with an X for us, as the staff survey results uh, were released on Tuesday morning. Um, and this is always a really uh, kind of hotly anticipated day in the NHS, as it's probably one of the best overviews we have of um, what it's like at the moment in trusts, um, all different trusts. Um, and we've done our yearly analysis, um, and. So, well, I, I was kind of leading leading on that. And um, what's, what struck me, actually, when our main story discussed was the um, kind of increase in, in violence against NHS staff from um, patients and members of the public and visitors. Um, and I think this was sort of underpinned by a letter published almost the same time as the survey results by Health Secretary Matt Hancock apologising to staff and kind of um, setting out some measures that are intended to, to curb the violence against patients um but i want to kind of throw it open to um to the rest of the team rebecca what, what were your thoughts it was an interesting one so uh, a, f- a fair few mental health uh chief execs have uh, um raised the question of how um the health secretary's policies will be applied to mental to so the mental what, health sh- should we cycle back a yeah bit? let's so, cycle back yeah. and explain <laughs> what he actually said which should be done yeah so 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 there were a couple of things and some of them we knew already but i think the new one um in this case was um giving nhs staff the right to deny non-emergency patients treatment not only of their violent towards staff but also if they discriminate harass or abuse them and i think that's the the, the key there is kind of non-emergency patients and going back to you as you were just saying about um mental health chief, chief executives what were some of their concerns around this so uh, the the statement doesn't quite cover how this applies to the mental health sector which um in which scenarios are very different from the acute sector for example when someone is sectioned on a ward you can't refuse to treat them because they are under a section Mm. you can't just send them out of hospital if uh, they assault a member of staff or are are violent or abusive they're there so in that situation what do what's the trust trust policy for their staff to protect their staff it's a very difficult situation uh, one i think many trusts struggle with Mm. but then also out in the community does community mental health care uh, count as non-emergency so a, a person receiving care for um uh sorry long-term care under the community mental health team can they be turned away for a for an appointment mm. then what the risk factor of what happens if that person uh gets gets iller mm. or mm. falls into a crisis yeah so maybe you know these sound like kind of promising words from my hancock but in reality is it going to be causing more of a headache for for certainly kind of trust leaders but also is it actually going to make a difference when it comes to protecting staff i think there's also something to be pointed out about the community that um in the new gp contract 20 uh 2021 um they've now said that you can't refuse to um treat violent patients so in the past gps used to be able to um, deregister them from their lists and they would be given a gp center that they were allowed to be treated at that may have had greater experience or greater training with violent um 
patients. Um, the new contract says that they're no longer allowed to do that and they can't deregister de de patients that have violent tendencies or violent behaviour. So it seems very odd that Matt's, Matt Hancock's come out with this statement this week, which seems at odds with what's happening mm. in other parts of the NHS. And actually, in other parts of the NHS, they reverse the idea that you can, can't treat um, aggressive uh, patients. So mm. I'm not quite clear if that was just one of the off-the-cuff remarks that he's released, um, hoping to make feel, staff feel more valued and supported. But in mm. real life, I c it's going to be very telling to see how it's implemented. Mm. I think also, just to take a sort of wider point, you've talked about the operational difficulties that, that can happen. I think also that statement raised certain ethical questions about, you know, what is the NHS here for? Is it here to turn down care to people it doesn't like effectively? Of course, people who harass or are racist or discriminate against staff should be, you know, absolutely told that is not acceptable and not allowed mm. to happen but do we really use that as a basis on which to deny them care mm. because ultimately the NH NHS is here to provide care for everyone mm. irrespective of whether or not it likes them mm. uh, and and I think you know in saying what Matt Hancock has said I can see why he said it because it's something that people on the face of it might agree with and the workforce might feel yeah. a bit more empowered I think when you actually look at uh, what it means and, and what those words means, I think it raises some quite troubling questions um, about, you know, are we going to now have a, a culture of the NHS sort of cherry picking which patients it wants to treat because it doesn't like like them? I completely agree with you. Matt Hancock's sentence actually says something like, if anyone has the capacity, i.e. they're not, as we talked about, being sectioned, um, he questioned whether they deserved the care of the wonderful NHS. And I felt quite uncomfortable when I read the yeah. word deserve yeah. um, because, you know, a lot of people... Are uh, when they're seriously ill, they're going through long-term health problems, that isn't just the physical issue is causing them. Even if they don't have a diagnosed mental health problem, it can be incredibly distressing to watch someone in, in pain and they may be behaving in ways that they wouldn't normally if they hadn't been going through that yeah. scenario. So it, it, it does seem a bit of a sweeping sweep, sweep statement which doesn't actually look at what the NHS is there for and also why patients are behaving the way they do. Yeah, it sounds like he's trying to basically distill down something that's incredibly complicated into kind of a catch-all statement of non-emergency that doesn't take in any of the context around this. Um, and I can see why he's doing it as violence has increased to 15% of all NHS staff who have experienced violence over the last year, which we're talking, I think, I looked it up, I think it was around maybe like 80,000 people or something. Um, I will have to check my figures there. But it's, you know, this isn't a, an insubstantial number of people. To counter that, perhaps it's more um, us needing to challenge the tolerance of it. I mean, as a mm. person giving care, do you just fall into the, the trap of that? It's normalised that you're abused every day. I mean, we look, we look at the... And the results for ambulance staff, and that's barely shifted. Oh and my goodness, horrendous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a third, I think, a third of all ambulance staff experience violence, which yeah. is understandable considering first responders often mm. in a situation that's incredibly high pressure. Um, and yeah, I'm sure they have to deal with a lot of like kind of face with a lot of tricky situations. But it's still, yeah, it's totally unacceptable. Um, and also, I think around um, mental health and learning disability trust, it's been kind of consistently around the twenty percent mar mark the last five years there's been very little improvement there and I think overall kind of the narrative on NHS violence we've you know I think in, in 2017 NHS protect was abolished and um, there was a kind of a lack of national collection of um, kind of violent attacks on staff and we've sort of seen a reversal of that um, kind of from the end of 2018 with um, 
the law was changed to increase jail terms for people who attack NHS staff, um, trying to bring in new measures, training for staff to defuse situations, patient, tra- patient, not patient training, but public <laughs> awareness campaigns, um, and another, another more data collection. And then we did some work with Unison in 2018, which kind of revealed the extent to which people are putting up with it, I think. Um, and I think it's kind of getting the message out there that it's not part of the job is, is quite important. Is it? Am I right in thinking that it was wasn't just for violence? It was also for discrimination Absolutely, and harassment. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. People saying that we shouldn't. Yeah. So again, I think yeah. I think you know when it comes, if we're talking about only violence, I think I would understand the, the policy better. Yeah, it's not just violence. violence is, yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, yeah. as Sharon said, people can behave very differently when they are under a lot of stress because of their health, and mm. you know, they might. Um, what what they do to try and attract attention may be seen as harassment by nurses or you know whoever. Yeah, I just think it, that that grey line is is really unclear. So state quite a dangerous policy. Do you remember the article? It got quite a lot of attention on HSJ a few months back uh, about chief executives. Um, a couple of chief executives who were very shocked. Oh yeah, cool. Racism. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Um, uh, one of them said uh, it was Andrew Ridley. Uh, said he was very shocked to hear that. If a if a patient had requested not to have a um, black or ethnic member of staff, then the team would mm. send in a white member of staff. Mm. It's how you yeah. So how what is the correct yeah. response in that situation? And, and I was really pleased to see the reaction on on Twitter of um, other chief executives saying we we would never we will never do this. Like you know, it's um, our staff shouldn't be treated in this way. And kind of coming back to that point about discrimination and um, the fact that um, there was a notable increase in discrimination because of ethnicity, specifically because of ethnicity. Um, and that has increased as well. And there was a sharp increase from last year, 2018, to the survey results this year of 2019, um, which I think is quite shocking. And I think, Sharon, you had some kind of interesting points on that. Yeah, I think I think part of that goes back to what Rebecca's just been talking about. I mean, it, it, when you have patients that are being racist towards staff, it partly comes back to the culture of, of what's expected and what the trusts themselves um, accept. Like, do they actually want to be turning patients away or would they rather, would staff rather feel better supported within the environment in which they work? And I think that's a worrying um, issue for people from a BME background. Um, this staff survey came out at a time, again, showing increased dis- uh, discri- uh, discrimination, harassment and bullying on the staff survey, but it really only highlighted what we already knew from the week before when the res survey came out. Um, and again, showed some of the worst scores um, in some of the cultural aspects, such as feeling supported um, since the st- service started in 2016. Um, and so I think we've, you know, we've got to really be thinking about what it is that's causing that harassment and whether those people have um, the support within the trust to help them deal with it. Um, interestingly enough, with the RES survey, um, we saw that discrimination had gone up in London quite significantly and yet was fairly steady in, in areas like Lincolnshire and Gaul and, and not drawing stereotypes that, you know, it is quite shocking that in like one of the most multicultural cities in the world, mm. um, the, the, the NHS is suffering the most when it comes to discrimination against people from a black and minority ethnic background. And there isn't really been an explanation for that. We, ha- we hear a lot of people saying, well, this is outrageous, this shouldn't be tolerated. But in terms of getting to the bottom of what's causing this, um, it's hard to really understand. I think one thing I did notice, our colleague Nick Catuno was tweeting yesterday, um, he'd gone to a launch at the Wellcome Trust um, on a task force to try and cre- increase BME staff within non-exec directors at the Trust. And some of the stats he, he, he tweeted out were really shocking. There's only, um, there's 73 trusts don't have any BME representation on their board at all. And there's mm. only 17 NEDs and 18 execs from a BME background on, it, on all the 
trust boards in, in total. And it does make you think, is it that they just don't see themselves represented at the top mm. and therefore bullying and harassment from people who, you know, don't have the right, you know, maybe are racist working with organisation is tolerated yeah. because they're not seeing amongst the workforce at the top um, the people like the people they're yeah, harassing. Exactly. They just, yeah. you know, they just think they can get away with it. I mean, it, these numbers are, are shocking. And, and mm. Yvonne Coghill, who's leading the res state, said that um, the res data is pretty much flatlined for the last four years. So we're looking at it and yet nothing seems to be changing. Yes. Yeah, and considering, I think it was five years ago, there was a, a drive to kind of improve race quality in the NHS and actually we're seeing it flatlining. It's kind of, you know, that's, that's, that's not working. And just to kind of um, pick up on your point, Sharon, around... Um, kind of seeing yourself on um, kind of leadership and trust. So I remember interviewing Sarah J Marsh um, a couple of years ago now, but uh, and she was saying that she's not going to sit in interview panels anymore that are all white. And um, I don't- And all male too. And all male, of course, yes. And g gender and other, we've got a, um, you know, the, a gender, a board um, gender balance target was set for 2020. And that I'm pretty, pretty certain hasn't been achieved. And also how about diversity of background? I don't really mm. ever see that talked about in terms of so obviously diversity is is, is a good thing for a board because it's d d it enables di diversity of thought um do we delve into diversity of background class and that kind of mm. that, those issues as well mm. i think those issues are really important especially when you start looking at areas such as liverpool i was speaking to a councillor from there a couple of months ago and he just said the uptake of cancer screening amongst working working age working class men is so poor mm. and you do have to say is there enough representation within the trust to think about how you can access and improve um, some of that treatment? Are people being innovative enough? Do they do they understand enough what the issues are? And these are only just questions, but I think that's an interesting point you've raised, Rebecca, because we do talk about gender and we do talk about ethnicity, but what is it in terms of representing the, the public we serve? Do we do we look at kind of education levels and and how how we access, ensure and access that within the population we're representing? Mm. Maybe the uh, NHS, just to draw a little football comparison, uh, there's something in football called the Rooney Rule, mm. where uh, I think, if I'm right in remembering this, uh, um, club football clubs who are looking for a new manager have to uh, uh, interview at least one BME candidate for the job. Um, mm. And that's been adopted, I think, in America, uh, not so much over here, but maybe the, you know, the time is right for a conversation about is that something that boards need to think about when they're appointing to, 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 to positions on, on, on a mm. board level? You know, we have to at least interview uh, someone from a BME background uh, as mm. part of the recruitment process or else we haven't fully completed our recruitment process properly. And if you mm. don't get the applicants? So I think partly is um, in encouraging people that they can apply for these jobs and there is a career path so um i guess yeah taking it step back and how do you encourage the, a diverse set of applicants and those career paths i remember the story about the job advert i think um what was that the chief nurse yeah. information yeah. officer yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, for nhsx yeah this mm. was actually discussed at the hsj um tech summit last week oh, um, okay. the it was pretty much written to attract the one person I think they wanted for the job, um, but it was written in such a way that it excluded anyone from a being being background applying because it needed board level um, uh, board level experience of which, um, as I understand it, Nick, I think you led on this more, but there wasn't any candidates that were capable of applying for it. Mm. Um, so they then re ran the advert. I'm not mm. sure if they just appointed the person they wanted <laughs> to appoint in the first place, which is completely another discussion in in itself. Yeah. Um, but I do think that when it comes to leadership, there is that kind of tap on your shoulder idea. Like, you, you, you know, you, you, you tap on the shoulder of the person that you think is going to do well. And that kind of 
can speak to unconscious bias. Sometimes it's easier mm. to hire someone like you because you know the risks that you present and they seem similar and you, and, and, exactly. and it seems less risky. Yeah. And I think talking about what Rebecca was saying, you know, leadership, there are leadership programs, there's leadership academies. If the talent isn't there at a BME senior level, then one, ask why, and two, there should probably be a process of ensuring that people from my diverse background are given... Uh, I made sure they, they get access to these academy programs and leadership programs and, and coming out the other end ready to, to lead and, and take those big roles on. Mm. And I think, it, I think it goes beyond the NHS to the kind of the arm's length bodies and the regulators as well. I think it's, you know, it's, it's important to have that diversity across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just to kind, of, kind of rounding up our staff survey conversation, um, I think it's important to kind of mention that we've obviously talked about some of the things that need improvement, but there were measures that... that were more positive, mm-hmm. kind of particularly around more people being satisfied with their pay, more people being happy with flexible working opportunities. This is something that's kind of been raised by many people, particularly when I've spoken to kind of um, particularly nurses and district nurses, people wanting more kind of um, people with, with caring responsibilities who need more flex- flexibility in their working lives. Well, it's every, so I think in this day and age, <laughs> to, to throw out the cliche, almost uh, most employers should be looking at flexible working mm. Uh, mm. most i would say m- most pl- even beyond the nhs yeah yeah should be no absolutely and actually that is a n- great way of bringing diversity into a team as well because mm. if you look at people um who have caring responsibilities or maybe have young children or um are trying to study part-time etc etc you're mi- more likely to ensure your d- your workforce is diverse mm. um by giving those flexible opportunities so people can come into the workplace when they want to Mm. How big were those increases? Just asking out of interest. Quite small. They were quite small, but they were still there. Um, I think. But I think the um, more staff being satisfied with pay, pay. I think it was around thirty-eight percent of staff, um, which was I think it was around a two percent increase, two percentage point increase, which isn't loads, but it's you know it's something. I think that kind of. I'm guessing that that coincides with the um, the agenda for change contract that was negotiated in. I think it was uh, in March 2018 um, that was kind of finalised. Um, but so there are, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. I think some of the key people plan measures, um, particularly around kind of morale and health and well-being, are showing some improvement, which is good. But as we've discussed, there's a lot of work to do. What, what do you think about, um, like, if you had to say yes or no, was it a positive staff survey overall for, <laughs> for the NHS? I think that depends who you're speaking to <laughs> in the NHS. Alabama Collins, workforce correspondent, what's your opinion? Successfully <laughs> avoiding the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, I don't know, I think it's quite hard to say um, overall because you're comparing so many different types of trusts and um, I think some of the, the trusts that often do well, so I've seen some familiar names, so Newcastle, um, St. Helen and Nosley, I think, as well, have also done really well again. Um, I think if you're at the top, you often tend to stay at the top. There hasn't been, I mean, the trust that, well, we've put a few caveats in our stories, but the trust that has seen kind of, I think, the the, the biggest um, kind of uh, reduction in people recommending care was North Cumbria, but they've gone through, just gone through kind of a tricky merger. Mm. They were quite clear that this has <laughs> happened right in the middle of the survey. And um, so, you know, there are a few caveats around that. But, um, yeah, as we said. Um, that actually reminds me of Sir Mike Richards when I first started working at HSJ. He said to me, this is when I used to cover the care quality beat, um, and he said to me that changing the culture in a trust takes years, like two to three years to mm. turn something around. So I think the fact we're seeing the same people at the top doing well on this shows mm. that when you've got a good culture embedded, it works, and when you don't, it's really hard to get that change um, 
brought into a trust so that staff feel happier and, and mm. better supported at work. Mm, mm. Yes, and absolutely. And I think, you know, if the NHS is going to retain the nurses um, and, and uh, you know, other staff groups as well that they want to retain, then, um, yeah, next year, I think we're going to have to see some improvements, particularly on measures around violence and discrimination, because, you know, people shouldn't have to put up with that at work. Um, and so for the last last 10 minutes, let's move on to a different subject. We're going to be talking tech and an exclusive story from Nick Harding. Um, and he's written about how the NHS is potentially at risk of sharing patient data unlawfully, which is a shocking headline. Can you give us a little bit more of the context, Nick? Yes, absolutely. Um, so this is a story we've been working on for a while. Uh, it's based on some uh, things we've been told by some senior people working in the sort of NHS tech landscape. Um, and yeah, as you say, basically what the story is that the NHS uh, is at risk of um, sharing data unlawfully. The reason we say that is because um, we have uh, the national opt-out programme, which is currently being sort of rolled out across the NHS. The opt-out is a policy which gives patients the power to stop their health provider from using their confidential data for research or planning purposes or commercial purposes, anything that goes beyond the sort of direct care that they need. So this policy went live two years ago in May 2018, and the NHS was given until March this year to get its processes in order uh, to be compliant with the requirements of the policy. We've been told that the NHS as a whole is very unlikely to achieve compliance by March, uh, by, by next month. Um, for a variety of reasons, I think it's it's a bit of a complicated process you have to go through. Um, obviously, we all know how um, busy the NHS is, um, and we're talking about so many organisations. And importantly, it also uh, refers to, or it also includes GPs, who, as we all know, very very busy. And this is the kind of job where perhaps they might sort of put it towards the back end of their priority list. So um, it means that it's unlikely that the target will be hit. And that leaves open the possibility that patient's data could be shared um, unlawfully from April onwards, which NHSX has been very clear is a red line for them that mm. you know patient data has to be um, the most important thing, uh, keeping that confidential and safe and complying with the wishes of the patients is the most important thing really, um, or among them. So for them, for, for trusts or GPs to be open to potentially breaching the rules, it's not a good look. What Do does that mean in effect? Breaching the rules? Are they are they are they open to legal action or what? What's the? So there's not much precedent here um, because there haven't been many cases of sort of data sharing schemes. Um, the most uh, prominent one, as people will remember, is the Royal Free Google uh, mm. data sharing agreement, yeah. where the Royal Free was found to have shared more than a million um, records. Uh, unlawfully effectively not they hadn't told the patients properly what they were going to do with the with their data um what action did they sort of get well the ico the information commissioner just sort of slapped them on the wrist really they didn't get fined um they didn't you know have any sort of uh, they, they were told what to do but they didn't really get a a severe punishment um as far as i can see so you know that i think the punishments aren't necessarily that strong if you do breach the law, but it is not a, a good look. And, um, you know, NHSX have been quite clear that they don't want to see that kind of behaviour again um, from organisations. And then from a patient point of view, of course, it just means, you know, you might feel very strongly that your data should be only mm. between you and your, your care provider. Um, and that potentially won't happen. And, and, you know, 
that's a pretty fundamental right as a patient to choose where your data goes. So does NHSX have a new deadline in mind or they told us how big the problem is or how many patients have requested their data not to be shared to unwillingly know that it's still being shared we don't know how big the problem is in terms of how many how many organizations are going to miss the target but um there isn't going to be an extension to the deadline so uh, that's pretty that that's been said um, and that's that's going to stay the way it is in terms of the number of people choosing to opt out it's quite interesting um you might think given the sort of press attention that data sharing agreements get sometimes for example the department of health amazon deal uh, mm. the, the google uh, role free deal that i mentioned they've, they've had a lot of coverage in the media and there's been quite a lot of you know hefty talk from politicians about it saying how awful all this kind of thing is um but the numbers of patients that opt out are surprisingly few so on um a monthly average of patients opting out is, is about 500 patients. And that's, you know, across the whole mm. NHS. So it's a tiny, tiny yeah, figure. So yeah, since the policy went live in May two years ago, only, I think it's about 9,500 patients have opted out. Wow. Um, and I think the reasons, uh, I think it sort of comes down to two things. One, patients just don't know that they have the right to opt out because it hasn't yeah. really been widely publicised. I mean, did you know? I mean, I'm not sure what it means to have my data shared, really. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure. And I think the NHS brand as well, I think that has a lot going for it. I'm just sort of speculating. But I think people, they trust the NHS in a way. They might not trust kind of a private marketing company. And they say, do you want to opt out of sharing your data with the NHS? You sort of think, well, no, because the NHS isn't going to do anything bad with my data. It's like my patient record, I might assume. I don't know how. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. I think people trust the NHS implicitly to protect their data. And as Rebecca says, you know, when you're asked the question, do you want to opt out of the national data sharing scheme? People will be like, well, what? I d- I've never heard of this before. Like, what does that mean? I'm sorry. And, you know, I've, I've got I've got to go from this appointment now. So, I've, you know, I'd rather you just fix me and then I'll think about this later. People mm. know. And, you know, people, so people either don't know or don't understand it or just don't care. Um, it, it will be a combination of those factors. But mm. we know that the NHS tried this kind of thing before. You might have heard of the care.data fiasco. Yes. If mm. that rings any bells, uh, I'm sure our listeners will, will know it, where... They tr- basically tried to do what they're doing now, but they didn't tell patients very well about it. And as a result, the whole thing was sort of shelved because there was so much criticism from people who did care very strongly, you know, campaign groups and politicians. They, um, you know, aired their views on the sort of calamity of this project. So that got shelved. And, um, and I remember at the time it was it said that um, that fiasco set data sharing back by about a decade. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't surprise me, therefore, that DHS, uh, NHSX has a red line in the sound although it doesn't really seem to, I'm listening to you Nick and it doesn't really seem to mean much because you know GPs are and trust to say they're not going to meet that deadline and it just acts the same they still have to meet the deadline so I'm not quite sure if that's the most sensible approach to try and to resolve this issue if people are being honest and saying you know we haven't got the resources to do this and um, I also remember a couple of years ago I wrote a piece about um, data sharing um, because we talked Rebecca about what it means to people um, the I'm going to talk about techie surveys the national uh, Can, uh, p- patient Experience Cancer Survey um, a couple of years ago, Macmillan and CRUK wrote to Jeremy Hunt, the then Health Secretary, and asked to be exempt from this uh, data opt-out because they felt that the survey would no longer be representative of its patients if too many people um, opted out of data sharing and that was also um, transferred over to how the surveys run. Um, there was no real answer to this apart from kind of kicking it into the long grass, so they now have a three-year ex- exemption 
from um, being part of the national data opt-out. What happens in three years, I don't know. And although it sounds a bit like, oh, what do we care about an epicific survey on cancer? That is actually at the heart of the cancer long-term plan. And if you don't know how patients are feeling or experiencing their care, it's very hard to say that, one, you've got patient-centered care, and two, ask how to change it. So there is some issues here that go well beyond the 1st of April 2020. And I can just see this data opt-out thing maybe as a as the legacy of Tim Kelsey and his care.data fiasco kept carrying on for, for much longer because it's very unclear to, you know, p- people working with NHS England and patients alike what it actually means. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, you can say, why does this matter? Well, I mean, there was a study by, I think it was EY, which, is, which keeps getting quoted everywhere, where they say, you know, NHS patient data is worth £10 billion if we can distribute it the right way so you know and and there is an argument for that you know that the nhs can certainly make a money and be you know resource itself better and be more Mm. efficient if it properly utilizes the data it's sitting on but then like as what sharon says and as you know referring back to the care data if we can't even get the process right before we start to work out how we should use the data Mm. then it doesn't really fill us with much confidence that we're going to use the data in a good way and that's why things like the national opt-out policy is very important. Mm. And should we look out for some follow-up for you on this? So yeah, um, hopefully. <laughs> we, um, <laughs> we've, got in our, we've got in our diary uh, <laughs> March 31st to April the 1st to start right. putting in our calls again. So wow. um, we'll see if they do if they have a miraculous turnaround. Turn who around, knows? Exactly. Uh, maybe now this podcast is going live, people will be more aware of it and uh, exactly. take it more seriously. But yeah, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll be following Everyone out more. Spring interaction. Brilliant. Well, thank you all. We've come to the end of um, the podcast this week. Um, thank you so much for joining me. And um, just to remind you, the HSJ Health, Health Check podcast is available every Friday morning on hsj.co.uk and all your favourite podcast places. Um, thank you very much and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you.